Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present investigative journalist and author Greg Pallast, who discusses his recent investigation that's revealed a smoking gun connection between Donald Trump and the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. Aliyah Hussein of the Center for Constitutional Rights who talks about the current campaign to pressure President Biden to make good on his pledge to close the Guantanamo U.S. military prison in Cuba, and Earth Justice Staff Attorney Jan Hasselman, who explains the latest developments in the legal and activist effort to close down the Dakota Access Tar Sands Pipeline. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The political crisis in Haiti escalated on February 7th, the 35th anniversary of the end of the Duvalier dictatorship, when President Jovenel Moïse refused to step down in the face of mass protests. Moïse, who insists he has another year in office, arrested 23 people for an alleged coup plot, including Haiti Supreme Court Justice Yavikel da Brazil, who was later released. Moïse provoked anger by forcing three top judges, including Da Brazil, to retire. The National Association of Haitian Judges, however, declared the judicial crackdown unconstitutional. Protesters denounced the United Nations for giving technical and logistical support to the Moïse regime. Leading Democrats in the U.S. Congress, including New York Representatives Gregory Meeks and Yvette Clark, called for an immediate Democratic transition in Haiti. The Biden administration appeared to back Moise's move to remain in power for another year, despite calls from human rights organizations for him to step down. Moise has ruled by decree since he suspended two-thirds of the Senate and the entire lower chamber of deputies more than a year ago. Moïse plans to hold a referendum on a new constitution in April. The global boom in wind power led loggers inside the indigenous Ecuadorian Amazon in search of balsa trees, a wood vital to making large wind turbines. At first, villagers welcomed the loggers, but it soon became a free-for-all as loggers drove into indigenous reserves and cut balsa trees without permits or paying local workers. The Economist magazine reports that the worldwide expansion of wind power placed enormous pressure on Ecuador's natural resources, which supplies 75% of the world's balsa wood. Prices doubled for balsa in 2019, driving independent loggers inland to cut down more trees. The balsa boom is reminiscent of the early 20th century rubber boom, where rubber tappers worked and lived in slave-like conditions. Last fall, several native tribes, including the Warani, voted to kick out the loggers. This led to confrontations when the tribes seized several boatloads of wood and loggers retaliated by holding 19 tribal members hostage. They were released later that day after Peruvian authorities intervened. The Warani now plan to start a cooperative to harvest balsa sustainably and sell it at fair prices. 
Native Americans are dying from COVID at twice the rate of white Americans, reports The Guardian. Indigenous communities in Mississippi, New Mexico, Arizona, and North and South Dakota are among the hardest hit. In the Navajo Nation, 1,038 people have died from COVID, where the number of deaths rose dramatically in January. Now, one of 160 Navajos have lost their lives during the pandemic. Navajo Tribal Council member Amber Kanaz Bakrati lamented so many layers of trauma, it's unbelievable. In Montana, over 1% of the Northern Cheyenne have died from the coronavirus with long-term impacts on children and mental health. Thus far, the tribe has received only 100 vaccine doses a week. At that rate, it would take a year to vaccinate the entire tribe. In Oklahoma, the Cherokee Nation, the country's largest tribe, has been successful in slowing COVID infections with aggressive public health measures, including testing, contact tracing, and science-based messaging. Still, Native communities nationwide suffer from systemic health inequities, including overcrowded housing, understaffed hospitals, limited access to healthy, affordable food, and lack of running water, attributable to Washington's failure to comply with treaty obligations, promising adequate funding for basic services in exchange for the ceding of vast amounts of tribal land. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The deadly January 6th insurrection that killed five people, including a Capitol Police officer, triggered Donald Trump's historic second impeachment in the House and the just-concluded trial in the U.S. Senate. Although the Democratic impeachment managers made a powerful presentation linking Trump to the assault on the Capitol by his supporters that convinced seven Republicans to vote for conviction, they failed to win the necessary two-thirds of the Senate that would have allowed a second-majority vote to bar the disgraced former president from ever running for public office again. While Senate Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell voted to acquit Trump, in a speech after the trial concluded, he declared that Trump was both practically and morally responsible for the events of that day, and went on to warn that Trump didn't get away with anything yet, saying we have a criminal justice system in this country, we have civil litigation. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently announced that Congress will be launching a 9-11-style commission to further investigate the January 6th Capitol attack. And prosecutors in New York, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. are conducting their own investigations into those responsible for the insurrection and multiple attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Your reporter spoke with investigative journalist and author Greg Pallast, who discusses his recent investigation that revealed what he says is a smoking gun connection between Donald Trump and the violent mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Donald Trump is still liable for any criminal actions uh, he committed, whether in office or not, um, as, uh, as uh, Mitch McConnell decided to remember after the vote. Here's the deal, as uh, President Biden would say. 
and this was, by the way, some of it was brought up as evidence citing our work uh, by Stacey Plaskett, the um, congresswoman and House impeachment manager from the Virgin Islands. There was, this might sound small to people, but it isn't. Let me explain. The permit for the rally at the Ellipse on January 6th specifically said there will be no march to the Capitol. It's not authorized. It's not permitted. Uh, the sponsors of the march, there were only one. It's called the Women uh, for America First, you know, pro-Trump group. But they had absolutely stone-cold promised the Park Service and, and the cops there will be no march to the Capitol. Now, why is that important? It's not just a piece of paper, the permit, because if the Capitol Police and the Park Service and the, and the Metro D.C. Police had known that there was going to be a march, there would be barricades. There would be they'd be notified. There'd be police. You know, there'd be police along a two-mile route. The Capitol Police would have been aware that thousands of people are now about to march on the Capitol. Um, and I have to tell you, I spoke with insiders at uh, Women for America First who were very worried and upset. I mean, number one, they have liability for what happened uh, because there was a violation of their permit. So beforehand, they had warned the White House there must be no march. They said that again and again straight to the White House. In addition, and the White House assured them there won't be a march. But there was a guy named Ali Alexander. For those who follow the alt-right, he is the founder and leader of Stop the Steal, the big pro-Trump group. You know, he's buddy-buddy with Trump, and he is a kind of uh, irregular co-host of the Alex Jones Infowars show. Ultra-right, Christian suprematist, um, not a white supremacist, he's black. And uh, he said, we're going to have a march. And he um, promoted the march. Uh, he put it out on Facebook. And apparently he coordinated with the White House through Donnie Jr., uh, Eric uh, Trump, and uh, Kimberly uh, Guilfoyle, who had a meeting. And they had a meeting the night before at Trump's personal residence in the Trump International Hotel in D.C., uh, Guilfoyle, the two uh, uh, Trump kitties, Rudy Giuliani and others, and they contacted Ali Alexander to give him the go-ahead on the march, even though Alexander and the White House were specifically and in writing and in text warned there must be no march. Now, the, the people at the running the rally said, look, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you're going to have thousands of very angry and some armed people marching you know, without a permit, just taking off across uh, Washington, D.C. to the Capitol building, what do you think is going to happen? This is quite foreseeable. They knew there would be mayhem. And so Donald Trump literally hid from them that he was going to call for, for the march. Um, all sources said the same thing. They were stunned and shocked when Trump said, we're going to march to the Capitol. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, announced that Congress would launch a 9-11-style investigative commission to look into what occurred on January 6th. What are your concerns about this investigation, given the track record of federal investigations in the past? So I do hope that the congressional hearings will get to the bottom of this and get those cell phone calls, get those text messages. I'm very concerned that they've let the evidence be removed, destroyed, deleted, uh, you know, especially the photos and all the communications with Ali Alexander and Alex Jones. 
who were the escorts from the White House that got them to the, uh, at, I think it's called parking lot six, where they were set off on the march. We want to know these things. We need to know these things because this was apparently a planned insurrection with too much help from inside the Capitol Police, from inside the Justice Department, from inside the FBI, certainly from inside the White House. That was investigative reporter and author Greg Palast. Find a link to Greg's recent investigative report titled Smoking Gun for Impeachment, Proof Trump's Call to March on the Capitol Was a Crime, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In early February, more than 100 organizations, led by the Center for Constitutional Rights and the Center for Victims of Torture, signed on to a letter to President Biden urging him to make good on his campaign pledge to close down the notorious U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The Guantanamo prison was established by former President George W. Bush in 2002 after the September 11th terrorist attacks in the U.S., and was initially designed to imprison terrorism suspects. But during the intervening 19 years, Guantanamo was transformed into an offshore prison beyond the reach of U.S. law and constitutional rights. Since its opening, nearly 800 men and boys have passed through its doors, where many were subjected to torture and held indefinitely without charge or trial. Joe Biden has previously pledged to follow through on former President Barack Obama's efforts to close the prison camp, which currently houses some 40 prisoners. Your reporter spoke with Aliyah Hussein, an advocacy program manager at the Center for Constitutional Rights, who talks about the national coalition of groups now working to press President Biden to deliver on his promise to close down the U.S. Guantanamo Bay prison in Cuba. So um, so in the last 19 years, um, Guantanamo has held nearly um, 800 men in total, so citizens of, you know, close to 50 other countries. And as you mentioned, only 40 remain, which is such a small number when you when you think about it. And, and most of them have been there um, well over a decade, some even for the full 19 years. Um, and, you know, there's a misconception of, of who's at Guantanamo and why. Um, you know, the majority of men who remain have never been charged with a crime, and, and they never will be. Um, and in terms of judicial process, um, you know, there are um, federal um, habeas um, cases, which many of the men there um, are pursuing. But ultimately, the, the government's position, and when I say government, I mean the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, um, all administrations have maintained that the U.S. has the legal authority to hold these men um, basically um, until it decides it no longer wants to. And so in that, in that way, Guantanamo um, really is, um, it's unlike any sort of, you know, carceral system that we understand it within the U.S. where people are, um, you know, serving out sentences, they've been convicted of crimes. So there, there are a small number of people who are in the military commission system um, at Guantanamo. There are 12 people with charges against them. Um, and that's, I, I think, when people consider sort of judicial processes, that's what they're thinking about. But, but that system is also deeply flawed. It was created um, especially to sort of cover up um, the torture that many of the defendants in that system have endured. And most of the, the people in that system have also only been charged with a crime, not yet convicted after over a decade of 
um, proceedings. So for the for the majority of the men, those not in the commission system, including many of Fusier's own clients, um, it's really it's really through politics and not the courts um, that they have their best chance of leaving Guantanamo. And, and that's where I think President um, Biden comes in and um, what we hope that he'll he'll do in terms of um, um, closing the prison. Aliyah, I did want to ask you, uh, what are some of the obstacles to closing this prison down? I know that there is a current federal law that prohibits the transfer of prisoners from Guantanamo to the U.S. mainland. There are also difficulties of transferring those prisoners uh, to other nations across the world. That's certainly been a problem in the past. Review those two instances and anything else that is going to be an impediment to closing Guantanamo down. So you're right to point out obstacles. Um, Closing Guantanamo is certainly not easy. If it were, it would have been done a long time ago, but it's it's definitely not impossible. And I think that's what um, we're focusing on um, with this new administration. you know, advocates, um, including some of my colleagues and allies, have put together a roadmap, which is basically the way the administration can close Guantanamo. And that roadmap um, really focuses on what is possible and what is um, within the law and what the president has the authority and power to do. So the two examples you mentioned, transfers to the U.S., uh, you're right, that is something that is barred. But ultimately, um, you know, for us, one of the, the problems in President Obama's closure plan was he saw closing Guantanamo um, as importing indefinite detention to the U.S. So, um, you know, both people who, who wanted to keep Guantanamo open and those who wanted to keep it closed, like us, said um, you can't close Guantanamo just by changing the zip code. And so um, we're really looking to um, transfers to um, other countries as a way to, to reduce the prison population and close the prison. Um, but there's actually a lot that is allowed, that federal law allows the president to do. And so, you know, right now we have 28 people who are not charged with a crime. And our position, including six who've been cleared for release, is that if the government has not charged these men and will not charge these men, they should be released. And so relief looks like returning them to their country of origin or if they're unable to go back home to countries like Yemen, for example, um, there is a ban on transfers to Yemen, uh, that those men uh, go to a third country for resettlement so that the U.S. government negotiates um, their transfers to other countries. And traditionally, um, that, that's been very successful. Countries like Oman, Saudi Arabia um, have taken dozens of prisoners, um, citizens of other countries, as a way to help the administration uh, reduce the population. So there definitely have been some obstacles, but reflecting on the Obama years and the missteps, um, you, there was too much of a reliance I think, on um, congressional authority. And, you know, Congress certainly wasn't an, an ally to Obama in, in the work to close Guantanamo. But now um, we're saying to Biden that he doesn't need Congress. He has the authority uh, and the power to take action now. And um, he should do so quickly um, so as not to allow for um, criticism and, and opposition to rise, just in the way that it did for Obama when things got tough. Um, he he sort of backed down on on you know his his promise to close Guantanamo and and therefore you know ultimately failed in that regard. So really hoping um, Biden takes action quickly. That was Aliyah Hussein, 
and Advocacy Program Manager at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Learn more about the campaign to press President Biden to deliver on his pledge to close down the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On his first day in office, President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, asserting the permits issued under the Trump administration were illegal, as they didn't fulfill the requirements of the Clean Water Act. Now climate activists are pressing Biden to cancel a similar tar sands pipeline from Canada, called Line 3, and to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL. The fight over that pipeline brought thousands of indigenous people and their allies from all over the hemisphere to engage in protest and civil disobedience alongside the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in 2016. One of Donald Trump's first actions in the White House was to reverse President Obama's order halting construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and oil began flowing in mid-2017. Since then, The tribe represented by the public interest environmental law firm Earth Justice has won two court victories, declaring that Energy Transfer, the company that runs the Dakota Access Pipeline, must shut it down, pending a thorough environmental impact statement. But the company continues to operate the pipeline in defiance of those rulings. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Jan Hasselman, the Earth Justice staff attorney representing the tribe, who talks about the latest developments in the case and the chances for victory under the Biden administration. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the second highest court in the country below the Supreme Court, affirmed a few weeks ago that the pipeline permits were issued illegally without the environmental review required by law and that there were serious concerns about the safety of the pipeline and its potential impacts on the people at the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. The court further agreed that the lower courts properly vacated the permits. In other words, there is no permit for the Dakota Access Pipeline to cross the Missouri River right now. However, rather than shutting down the pipeline itself, the court said it is the obligation in the first instance for the administration to figure out what it's going to do with this illegally operating pipeline. And that makes sense, because now that the legal issues have been resolved, this issue is better solved through the political process rather than a continued process of lawsuits and appeals. So the judicial system basically handed the question back to the administration of what are you going to do about this illegally operating pipeline? And there is only one possible answer to that question. Shut it down. The court ordered a full environmental review of the pipeline safety. Uh, That process is going to take around a year. And it, it just doesn't make any sense to allow something to keep operating while you study whether it is safe enough to keep operating, which is what the pipeline is asking. So we are turning to the Biden administration, which has done terrific early actions on both climate as well as indigenous sovereignty and justice, and saying, look, there's only one answer here. Shut this thing down while we go through the permitting process in a lawful manner. 
There was an important hearing on this case that was scheduled for February 10th. Why was it canceled? At this point, there are no new Biden administration officials in charge of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the Trump-era holdovers are still running the agency. So it makes sense that the new administration has some time to get new appointees in place and to figure out how it wants to handle this issue, which is going to be a change from the previous administration, which, of course, violated the law in the first place by authorizing the pipeline and canceling the original environmental review that was started in the Obama administration. So we're not happy that the pipeline continues to operate illegally, but we do think it's reasonable to give the new administration some time to sort out what it wants to do here. Jan Hasselman, indigenous folks and climate activists are saying to President Biden, you know, it's great that you stopped the Keystone XL pipeline, which was pretty moribund already, but you need to also stop the Line 3 tar sands pipeline from Alberta, Canada, currently being built through northern Minnesota across indigenous lands, and the Dakota Access Pipeline, which goes from the oil fields of western North Dakota through other indigenous lands. So they're not exactly the same, but does it make sense to package them together, do you think? I think each of the pipeline fights are unique, and the requests to the administration are not being bundled as a single ask. There are obviously parallels between them, most notably the impacts on indigenous people and tribal members. What's been encouraging has been the early actions that this administration has taken to support tribal sovereignty and his appointment of uh, Deb Holland as Secretary of the Interior sends a very strong message that he intends to take those issues seriously. But these pipeline battles will be an early test of their seriousness and commitment to those issues. You've been working with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe on this fight for years through the administrations of two tribal chairmen. Can you share anything about how the people are feeling at this point? Do they feel vindicated or are they holding their breath until the end? Do they think they will win? What's been so impressive to me about uh, my client, the, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, is how they have never wavered, they have never backed down, they have never given up hope that they will prevail in this fight, despite extraordinarily long odds, despite the catastrophic election of, of Donald Trump, despite everybody in the world telling them that there was no way that they could win this fight. And through prayer and through determination, they have held the line, and here we are. We're at the cusp of shutting down this pipeline, which should have never been permitted in the first place. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're optimistic that they're going to win this fight, and they're not going to stop fighting until they do. That was Jan Hasselman, staff attorney with Earth Justice. Learn more about the legal and activist campaign to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
Please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, KIDE in Hoopa, California, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>